This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. I heard Dr. Janara Goreng-Goreng on a webinar about First Nations democracy and she said elders must not say one thing and do another. And tonight's show is all about that acting in good faith, living authentically. She said now is the time for listening and rebirth. Our guest tonight is Winton Higgins. We'll be joined in spirit by Albert Camus and the brave people of Le Chambon, plus Pope Francis, whose book Laudato Si will also come into the discussion. The pandemic of 2020 has put our global economy on pause. This is giving us a breather a chance to reflect. For climate activists who've been trying to slow down and transition the machine, it seems miraculous. Transport emissions are down as flights are cancelled and cruise ships are seen as dangerous incubators of disease. We're asked to stay home and some homeless people are put up in city hotels who've lost the tourist trade. Home deliveries and Zoom conferences link us up with people we now have the time to talk to. From an emissions point of view, the shutdown of large industries has caused a 5% drop in emissions, but this is only temporary. People can see the Himalayan peaks from towns where smog was the norm, but in this pause, where people are daring to hope that we might recalibrate settings on the great machine, I am worrying that a 5% drop is not enough when the IPCC tells us we need a 7.5% drop every year until we can stop the warming. Plus, we need radical drawdown in every sector. The shock doctrine by Naomi Klein showed us that predatory companies with their ravenous need to grow will pounce on this crisis and turbocharge all sorts of industries whose side effects of damaging the biosphere will continue to be seen as a necessary trade-off by job seekers made more docile by the experience of 2020. Tonight I want to talk about recalibrating ourselves for the time ahead when moral courage and a clear-sighted view of where we want to go is really necessary. My guest tonight is Winton Higgins. He's a distinguished writer and teacher. He grew up on a sheep and cattle station in Outback, New South Wales and Northern Territory. He became a barrister and then studied in Sweden and London. He has contributed to our knowledge of how genocides happen. He's interested in the way we displace our moral responsibilities as part of a bigger whole. Also, in in the context of climate action, how we can take heart from the examples of at Le Chambon. We'll talk about Albert Camus, who was writing The Plague, a well-known novel, in Le Chambon in 1940, and about also another book, The Pope's Letter on Ecology and the Climate. It's called Laudato Si. So welcome, Winton. How are you feeling in this quiet time where we are locked down, but the pandemic and climate emergency are creating havoc? outside us. Well, thank you, Vivian. I guess um, I'm feeling busier than ever. Quite an opportunity for us to go back to first principles. I guess that was one of the reasons I returned to Camus' book, The Plague, because it deals with a situation rather like the one we're in now. Uh, Pope Francis calls on us to make a bold cultural revolution He says our economic system ignores and denies the environmental crisis, the inequality and the injustice, which the pandemic has shown up so clearly. Uh, He wrote this before the pandemic, but I'm sure he would be saying this now. He says the consumerist culture leaves behind debris, desolation and filth. 
How do you see this kind of cultural revolution happening? Well, I hope it is happening. <laughs> and I think to a large extent uh, it, it is, uh, that suddenly people become aware, first of all, of what the sky looks like, what the air looks like, uh, when it's not as heavily polluted as um, we're used to and grown indifferent to. But it's also pointing up the uh, enormous shocking inequalities and social exclusion that uh, that Francis also talks about in Laudato Si. Uh, the great, um, the, the brilliance of that encyclical lies in the way he associates the, the destruction of the climate with gross inequality and says you can't deal with one without dealing with the other. I think this is, you know, when we think about uh, things and people are beginning now to think about what is happening to the refugees that we've left to rot uh, on our, in our offshore detention camps, uh, as well as the onshore ones, uh, the extreme um, the, the, the extreme exclusion that they are experiencing and the complete lack of medical care, proper housing and so forth. Um, and, um, of course, this is being repeated around the world. What is going to happen to uh, people living in developing countries with very poor or no public health systems once the pandemic begins to strike them? It, the the horrific scenes we've seen in New York will probably pale uh, by comparison to what we might be seeing in Africa and some of the poorer parts of Latin America and Asia. Well, I think one of the comments you made in that essay, you said we should stop thinking about our personal response to climate change in negative terms like what I must give up, how bad, what a hair shirt it'll be. But you said maybe the biosphere is nudging us to grow up instead. I'd like to know how can we get a grip on what's fundamental to survival? It's a kind of ethical choice. Uh, yes, it's an ethical choice, but behind it is a, um, a system choice. I mean, we can, we, you know, we're stuck in a system that is now showing how incredibly destructive it is. And I think this is one of the points that Francis was making that, and, and it's one of the strengths of, uh, the Catholic theological tradition is to understand that evil can reside in systems. It can reside in institutions. And we're stuck, no matter how uh, worthy we are at an individual level, we're stuck in a system that is prioritising profit at the expense of what we think is an appropriate use of our time and resources. And, of course, uh, we're not getting any of the profits either, let alone um, you know, the satisfactions we might get from living in good societies uh, and in good economies. And this is, this is an interesting convergence here between what Francis was saying in Laudato Si and a determinedly secular approach taken um, by Martin Heglund in his new book, uh, This Life, where he talks about secular faith uh, and, uh, if you, you know, if one doesn't have a strictly secular faith, which values this life over lives in some other place or time, you can't come to grips with the shocking waste and despoliation that's going on at the moment. Well, it worries me that so many of us are really complicit in this capitalist growth economy. You call it the system. And so many jobs are involved in destroying the planet, in destroying you know, just even the rivers, local destruction as well as climate destruction. And it's not just coal and gas workers either. I spoke to a seafarer a few months ago from the MUA who was employed supplying toxic chemicals to an offshore oil rig and they saw hundreds of dead fish as they'd approached the rig and wondered what it was. Well, it was the excess chemicals that were on the water that killed the fish. And they knew that their cargo was going to create death, but their job, you know, that was their job. Their money was involved in it. And that man was working very hard to get a transition uh, of jobs from, uh, you know, from seafarers supplying oil rigs to uh, supplying offshore wind farms. And they were very keen on stimulating this. There's one off the coast of Victoria 
um, called Star of the Sea. So he was a real activist. He was really conscious, but he he made it clear my job was, you know, I couldn't uh, within that industry, I couldn't uh, raise my head because I'd lose my job. And I thought you talked a lot about Holocaust in your Holocaust studies. You found that a large number of people just displace all moral responsibility. They're bystanders. Could you explain how to resist this? Um, well, it's uh, it's a very difficult question. Obviously, that we you know we we have to put food on the table and keep a roof over our heads, uh, and we the only way we can do that is by, to some extent or a very large extent, um, going along with the way society is operating. So we enter into uh, a kind of moral space that the existentialists call bad faith. Uh, we pretend that things that are happening are not happening. Uh, we pretend we don't have any uh, choices when, in fact, we do have choices and we have a responsibility to exercise them and act on our choices. So, um, you know, when you look at this sociologically, it's fairly um, <laughs> it's fairly depressing. You know, look, look just looking at the Holocaust, um, there was about 500 million people living in German-occupied Europe um, during most of the Second World War. Of those 0.01% um, chose to actively rescue Jews who were earmarked for industrial murder. Uh, so it's a fairly, it's a very small number. And, um, you know, what, I, what I'll be talking about in a minute is um, that uh, is about a group of, it wasn't just a group of individuals, but a whole community that spontaneously understood um, their, what was happening and what they had to do about it. And it's sort of by looking at them, we get a sense of what went wrong with the other you know, 99.99% of the population who uh, who were bystanders. And bystand, bystanders uh, is a very important concept in understanding genocide because without bystanders, genocides can't go on. Um, if the you know, bulk of the population isn't um, uh, indifferent to the fact that, that their Jewish neighbours are being... Um, rounded up and sent to death camps, or they think it's a good idea anyway, then th- this way the perpetrators, who are usually a tiny minority, can get on with their work. But if the bystanders um, change tack, then the whole thing falls down. And I think there is certainly is an analogy between that and the way in which the neoliberal capitalist system is destroying the planet and we're all just simply playing our roles in the societies that are being run uh, according to those, in, according to that policy, and according to the dictates of uh, what is called the Washington Consensus. You know, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and the American Treasury, and so on, which has been imposing this on the, for the last thirty years. And it's during those thirty years that. Um, the great acceleration has occurred. The great acceleration uh, in uh, in global warming uh, and uh, emissions that are causing it. So, um, you know, it's really a question of us understanding how how we are involved in a system, how we are contributing to a system, which is um, an existential threat to uh, civilized human life as we know it, as well as the lives of many other species. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Winton. I'm going to ask you now to read your talk. It was a talk that just surprised me. It was about Le Chambon and Albert Camus. It was about moral courage, building up our moral courage for the time ahead. So I'd like you now to um, give us your talk, Winton. It's for a much bigger audience than that little room in Bondi Junction. So could you now give this to the Melbourne and Sydney audience, please? Like many generations before us, going back to the Middle Ages, we find ourselves in the grip of a scary epidemic right now, or a pa- pandemic, as we've learned to say. And this pandemic is due to the coronavirus, as I'm sure we're all aware. The earlier ones were called things like the Black Death, the Plague, the Spanish Flu, 
Ebola, at the cholera epidemics that kept recurring. And some great creative writers have used these occasions to plunge into their deeper human meaning. And here I'm particularly concerned with the French novelist and existential philosopher Albert Camus' novel The Plague, which was published in 1947, but written during the German occupation of France. But he's, of course, is not the only novel of this kind. We can also think of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in a Time of Cholera and so on. Um, and they bristle with resonances that I want to explore with you, particularly uh, Camus' book, The Plague. Uh, Camus is still famous today for his contribution to existentialism, um, a modern uh, a modern philosophical strand. Uh, he was a Frenchman born in 1913. By the time Nazi Germany conquered and occupied France in 1940, he was an established writer. Uh, and he planned his novel, The Plague, as an allegory of the German occupation of his country. The story he tells is set in Oran, a small, modern, commercial and uncharming French city on the Algerian coast. Life here is extraordinarily banal until rats in growing numbers start staggering out onto the streets and landings and hemorrhaging and dying at the feet of the indignant citizens. Not long after that, a number of the citizens start dying horribly of a strange disease. The novel's main character, or point of view character, as we novelists say, is a plain man called Bernard Rieux. He's one of the city's doctors. He quickly drops to the almost unthinkable conclusion that this modern town is beset by a medieval calamity, the Black Death. The city fathers and several other doctors at first take umbrage at this suggestion. And this might sound familiar to you if you've been following uh, the White House's uh, uh, approach to uh, coronavirus. But the epidemic gathers speed and the national authorities isolate the city to stop the plague spreading to other areas. No one is allowed in or out of the city and for several months the citizens are locked in with the plague which picks them off randomly and in every in, and in ever larger numbers. Rieu and his closest associates are ordinary private individuals who make no pretense to heroism or public spiritedness and have a tendency to get lost in their own personal trials and tribulations. But they are also realists. They react with irritation at the widespread denial and trivialization going on among the the other doctors and officials. The logic of the truth they are bearing witness to gradually draws them into the dangerous work of fighting the plague. This is a story within a real-life wider story. Camus suffered from tuberculosis. Halfway into writing the novel, he's forced to live uh, he's forced to leave Paris, where he's living, for a place with clearer, drier air, so he can continue to write his novel. He moves to a quiet, poor, rural town of around 5,000 souls on the French Massive Central, one called Le Chambon. He arrives there with no inkling of the, of the drama that's unfolding in that town but it's a drama acutely relevant to the themes of the plague, his book, one that has left a clear impression in Camus' text. And the novel in turn becomes a key source for those who came much later to try and figure out what had happened in Le Chambon. So, uh, as the German occupant, as the German occupiers in France and their Vichy collaborators rounded up Jews to send them to death camps in Poland, some Jewish fugitives 
happened to turn up unannounced in Le Chambon seeking sanctuary. It was sort of on the way to the Swiss border, which was probably why they uh, were on their way uh, through the town. The locals, who were overwhelmingly Huguenots, devout Protestants, took them in. Though it constituted a capital offence under the collaborationist Vichy regime's legal system. As more Jewish fugitives arrived, the same thing happened. Jewish underground organisations noticed this pattern and began to send more and more of their desperate charges to Le Chambon. In time, the 5,000 Chambonais, the people of Chambon, took in around 5,000 Jewish fugitives in this way. No one was turned away. Everyone was saved. In comparative terms, the Chambonais approach to rescue on this scale was, to say the least, idiosyncratic. They had no weapons or organisation and very few resources of any kind. They were very poor rural people. Church services were the only meetings they ever went to. Each family took its own initiatives. It seemed to believe not only that what it was doing was the decent Christian thing to do, but that any normal human being would do the same thing under the circumstances. None made the slightest claim to heroism. The Chambonais were not to know either that they'd now joined the tiny minority, uh, a moral elite of 0.01% of German-occupied Europe's people who undertook rescue work. The vast majority of Europeans looked on as the Jews were slaughtered, refusing to believe it was happening or refusing to believe that it mattered. This vast majority including hundreds of millions of Chambonais fellow Christians, had no respect for the truth. Perhaps the most important characteristic of the Chambonais was precisely their respect for truth. A characteristic uh, that um, cultivating the Buddhist Eightfold Path, or indeed any ethical system worthy of the name, demands of us all. The Chambonais readily acknowledged what was happening to the Jews and they knew what the German occupiers and the Vichy authorities were like. So the Chambonais rescued Jews openly uh, while voicing their open disdain and contempt for the German occupiers and the Vichy authorities. Um, They practised open, in-your-face spiritual resistance. The Chambonais knew what they knew, and they knew what they had to do about it. Their full acknowledgement of the truth made them stiff-necked and fearless. They had no reverse gear. In this way, they stared down opponents with vastly greater firepower and no scruples about using it but also no experience of dealing with people remotely like the Chambonais. Camus saw this drama unfolding, and we find strong echoes of it in his text. Right at the beginning of the epidemic, his viewpoint character, Dr. Rieu, has to contend with those who, just like the bystanders to the Holocaust, or just like the denials, deniers of climate change today, refuse in the name of caution and prudence to acknowledge what is happening and pronounce its true name because they would make that would make heavy demands on the city authorities and disrupt the life of the citizens. A certain Dr. Richard fits into this category and accuses Dr. Rieu of describing what Richard calls the syndrome to make sense, make it sound like the plague, to which Rieu tartly replies that he hadn't described a syndrome, he described what he'd seen. And it didn't matter what you called it, if the authorities didn't take drastic measures, half the town would die. 
And I want to quote the novel at this point. Um, so this is what you find um, in the novel on this question. But there always comes a time in history when the person who dares to say that two and two make four is punished by death. And the question is not what reward or punishment awaits the demonstration. It is knowing whether or not two and two do make four. For those of the townspeople who risked their lives, they had to decide whether or not they were in a state of plague and whether or not they should try to overcome it. So as Rieu and his friends undertake their exhausting and dangerous work, they occasionally squeeze in a little downtime in which to reflect on what they're thinking, what they um, think about what they're doing. Here too, uh, the convergence with uh, any kind of ethical practice uh, is striking. At a stage when one of Rio's acquaintances, the journalist Juan Bear, is still holding back and refusing to play at heroes, as he puts it, Rio replies to this objection. I have to tell you this. This whole thing is not about heroism. It's about the decency. It may seem a ridiculous idea, but the only way to fight the plague is with decency. What is decency, Rombert asks, suddenly serious. In general, I can't say, Rieu tells him, but in my case, I know it consists in doing my job. Like, like a good um, Buddhist practitioner, or a practitioner of any other worthwhile ethical system, Rieu here refuses to talk in generalities. But it's clear from the thrust of the book that decency is an effect of honesty, of acknowledging what is true and then acting on it with whatever resources one can personally muster. Just as a Chambonnet did, and just as our own healthcare workers are doing uh, right now in uh, Australia and around the world, of course. Rieu and his friends exemplify the main original contribution that existentialism has made to our moral understanding, the concept of authenticity. It is the full acknowledgement of one's real situation in contrast to bad faith in which one denies one's actual situation and the choices and demands for action within it. Authenticity, being real in one's practice, one's ethical practice, is an essential aspect of cultivating the practice itself. Naturally, the novel has quite a bit to say uh, about suffering, uh, which um, was where the Buddha started, but of course many other traditions acknowledge, fully acknowledge and try and deal with this issue of suffering. In Buddhism, it is the starting point. Uh, we call it by the name of Dukkha, and it includes not just suffering, but anguish, uh, grief, distress, and so forth. Um, in the novel, of course, it's not just the physical agonies of the dying, but the fear, grief, and isolation that become the townspeople's daily experience. During the long struggle against the plague, a close friendship gradually develops between Rieu and one Jean Tahou, a recent blow-in to the town and something of a social misfit. Rieu is a type who keeps his own counsel, and it takes a long time before he opens up to Tahou. When he does, he confesses that he only became a doctor, quote, because I needed to, because it was a career like any other, and one of those that young people consider for themselves. So obviously nothing heroic about that. But as he practised medicine, Rieu has never been able to reconcile himself with death. And here I quote, I quote him, since the order of the world is governed by death, he tells Taru, perhaps it is better for God that we should not believe in him and struggle with all our strength against death without raising our eyes to heaven and to his silence. And he intends to go on struggling against death, 
even though this struggle condemns him to what he calls an endless defeat. Thematically, the plague has now broadened its scope um, from being a metaphor for the German occupation of France to being a metaphor for death and ultimately of evil as such. That which denies and insults humanity. The struggle against death and evil, both embodied in, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, in Mara, the Lord of Death, uh, will never be crowned by final victory, but it gives an individual's life dignity and meaning to be constantly uh, trying to uh, defeat it. This wisdom impresses Tao'u, and he asks, who taught you all that, doctor? Um, and Ryu simply says, suffering. Still later, Taru has been, ha, has his own confession to make to Ryu about his relationship with death as evil in pure form. His father was a public prosecutor. He was a good, affectionate father and Taru grew up very close to him. But one day, when Tahu was old enough, his father suggests that he sit in on one of his trials to see if he's drawn to follow in his father's footsteps and become um, an advocate, a lawyer. The young Tahu watches the poor wretch in the dock with growing sympathy, knowing his father is working to have him executed. When his father wins the case and the defendant is duly sent to the guillotine, Taru turns quite viscerally, viscerally against his father and against all the social institutions that create death. In Taru's words, which come very close to any ethical practitioner's self-instruction, this is what he says, All I know is that one must do one's best not to be a plague victim, and this is the only thing that can give us hope of peace or failing that a good death. I have decided to reject everything that directly or indirectly makes people die or justifies others in making them die. That is why this epidemic has taught me nothing except that it must be fought at your side. I have absolute knowledge of this that everyone has it inside himself, this plague, because no one in the world, no one is immune. What is natural is the microbe, the rest, health, integrity, purity, if you like, are an effect of will and a will that must never relax. The decent person, the one who doesn't infect anybody, is the person who concentrates most. All I say is that in this, that on this earth there are pestilences and there are victims. And as far as possible, one must refuse to be on the side of pestilence. Eventually, the plague retreats from the city. Healthy rats reappear and people stop dying. The citizens rejoice in the street as the first trains from the outside world arrive at the station and the city opens its gates. But Rieu, nursing his own private bereavement, is not impressed. And the last paragraph of the novel reads, Rieu recalled that this joy was always under threat. He knew that this happy crowd was unaware of something that one could read in books, which is that the plague bacillus never dies or vanishes entirely, that it can remain dormant for years, in furniture and clothing, that it waits patiently in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, handkerchiefs and old papers, and that perhaps the day will come when, for the instruction or misfortune of humankind, the plague will rouse its rats and send them to die in some well-contented city. So that was the, uh, that was the talk. Oh, thank you, Wyndham. Here is a song arranged by Kavisha Masilla after Peter McKenna's poem based on the Indian 15th century mystic poet Kabir. It's called 
Magnificence, and it's from a new album by Kavisha Marcella called Empty Sky.
Hal, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. That's marvellous. For listeners who've just tuned in, um, we're talking to Winton Higgins, who's a distinguished writer, looking at The Plague by Albert Camus. Winton, I'd like to ask you, um, what arises for me is the way the people of Le Chambon were morally ready for those refugees who arrived. They knew what to do. They thought it was normal. I'd never heard of Le Chambon until you mentioned it, and I have since read a few books about it, and apparently there's a film about it as well. Listeners might like to look up that film later, but they knew what to do. I want to know, look, climate activists here have taken great risks like that too. They've locked onto coal trains, sat down on runways. They've tried to prevent logging by perching up on ancient trees. They've faced court and heavy fines. And behind the scenes, there's research groups that have been showing the way forward, trying to create blueprints for a decarbonised society, um, how to stop the economy growing like a ravenous cancer. But many more citizens are like those bystanders to the Holocaust, even voting for more of it under the heading of jobs and growth. What do you just say to them? I guess uh, all one can do is is uh, go back to Camus, as it were, and say, look at what is actually happening. Look at the bushfires. You know, look at the uh, the huge dust storms that are at this very moment, as we speak, blowing across western New South Wales. Look at the the way in which vast areas of form, formerly arable land are turning into deserts, um, and you know, do you really believe that you can still have a good economy without a planet? I think one has to keep hammering that home and rational arguments will only go so far. We all practice a tremendous amount of protective shallowness. I don't understand climate change. I don't know what this scientist bloke is saying and so on. And this is why I think there is an issue here about leadership. Now, in the Le Chambon case, uh, the local pastor, Andre Trocne was an extraordinary religious leader. And uh, the film that you alluded to uh, is called Weapons of the Spirit. And it actually comes from a, a sermon he gave the day after uh, France capitulated and, um, and the collaboration of the Vichy regime took over. He said uh, to his congregation, um, this is the situation. They are very powerful, but we must resist them with weapons of the spirit. And that is the name of the film, actually, Weapons of the Spirit, uh, that was made by Pierre Sauvage, uh, whose very life depended upon the people of Le Chambon and their weapons of the spirit because he was a baby born to Jewish refugees on the run in La Chambon by the village doctor in 1944. So the leadership issue, I think, really comes up in the, in the film. I mean, the, these people um, certainly had the kind of uh, moral convictions necessary for them to respond to a message that was coming from their pastor in the terms I've just uh, I've just quoted. So, you know, when I look at a group like Extinction Rebellion are doing, I think, wow, you know, I mean, this is um, this could be the beginning of our Le Chambon moment. And it's going on not just here, of course, but uh, in other countries as well, particularly the United Kingdom. And it probably that is part of the issue, but partly it's also that people are now in this lockdown phase. We have time to reflect. We have time to see what a um, slightly less polluted world looks like and also what it's like to have a bit of downtime to reflect on um, our so-called normal life. Yeah, 
Well, something that I, when I read it after your talk originally, I, I went and read a bit about it, and you just mentioned that they weren't really organised. It was idiosyncratic. But in some of the other books, I think they, there was a kind of clandestine organisation. For example, a lot of the school teachers were writing out fake ID documents and ration cards, and these would just appear in Andre Trocmé's foyer or in his kitchen, just these empty ones from the... Uh, you know, a, a, a fresh card, and then they would fill in all the details for these people that they wanted to uh, smuggle out. I think there was a sort of clandestine organisation, even with Boy Scouts and even the children. You know, they they were alerted when to escape, when there was a Nazis would be coming into the village and checking houses. These people could escape into the forest behind. I think there is something, and that's also what's happening now in this quiet time with the climate movement. There's a frenzy of webinars where people are really organising in this time. So I think that is actually happening, and a lot of people might gain heart to know that that is happening. Yes, well, in uh, in Le Chambord, there was a, a lot of networking going on. I mean, there was, there was not a committee. <laughs> no. made decisions. No, it wasn't an NGO um, with committed. government funding. <laughs> The networking was very largely uh, the work of the women. The women were very much in contact with each other and, and very prominent in the rescue work. Um, and, of course, the women were mainly the teachers. But the interesting, there's another interesting point in what you just said. The, uh, all, all the um, false documents that... Um, that were produced for Jewish refugees in in Le Chambon were actually the work of uh, one man, and it's an interesting story. He was um, he he just lost his job in a local in a local government office, uh, and he had all the official stamps. And on his last day of work, he stole all the stamps, and he and he was one of the one of history's. Uh, most talented and workaholic um, <laughs> forgers, <laughs> and he set up a shop in in Le Chambon, and it, the effect was quite extraordinary. And the way in which Pierre Sauvage, who makes the film, describes this as a conspiracy of goodness. You know, once you start this vortex uh, of resistance, all sorts of strange people start to get involved. I mean, the Catholic minority became involved, um, and people like um, like like the forger, who was uh, you know. So when you know a, a gendarme stopped someone in the street and demanded to see uh, his um, uh, identity card, a carriage could pull out of his pocket a whole bunch of papers. You know, there'd be uh, library cards and parking fines and everything, all made out in the name of this false person. <laughs> and, of course, you know, any any official who'd made the demand for identity papers would just roll their eyes and give up because uh, this person was obviously who they pretended to be. <laughs> yeah. And um, and there were, and sort of all sorts of other people got involved, even a, a one-legged female um, agent of the British Special Operations Executive uh, got in, got involved in the end, and she was a, a major character as well. Um, but uh, but the whole the whole dynamic of rescue began in this semi spontaneous way. I mean, from the point of that first sermon after the French capitulation, uh, it just happened. You know, then no one was sending uh, these people to you know, particular places, a particular families, it just, it just happened. Yeah, I'd like to ask you to comment on the media. In the book, you just quoted the bit where the journalist says to Dr. Rieu, it's just playing heroes. He's taking a cynical point of view. And mm. Rio replies, it's about decency. I think in the last six months, we've seen doctors, nurses, emergency workers, firefighters, local leaders all coming to the fore. And I've also noticed Indigenous people on many forums I go to playing a key part in climate debate and trying to say, let, let us have more of a say in it. We know a lot about this, where previously they only played a sort of token role. I wonder, do you think the media really understands this decency or they, are they just highlighting heroes and then moving on? 
Well, it depends on which media we're talking about, I think. You know, obviously the Murdoch media doesn't understand anything about decency uh, because basically a propaganda propaganda organ for the forces of darkness, particularly in regard to climate change. And there, there are other examples of that. But I think there is an element of decency coming out even in, in mainstream organs like what used to be the Phil Fairfax Press. I mean, there are a lot of articles in there which are breaching decency. I'm thinking in particular of Ross Gittins, you know, the veteran economics correspondent. And um, I, I certainly think it has a role, but of course it's always going to be held back by being beholden to, adver- to advertisers, being beholden to big business. But then again, you know, big business itself is beginning to think, hey, if we don't have a planet, how are we going to make a profit? Well, that's been a marvellous conversation, Winton. Thank you. So, listeners, we've been talking to Winton Higgins, who's a distinguished writer. Um, We've been talking about The Plague and Laudato Si, and I hope you read both of those books. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading, asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. This is a different show than usual tonight um, and we'd love to know your thoughts. If you'd like to contact us, please share the podcast with your friends. Thanks tonight to our guest, Winton Higgins. Thanks also to Andy, Michaela and Raoul who got this show to air. Now now for Climate Action. A very well-known round-the-world organisation is 350.org. They're very good at tactics and campaigning, and at the moment they're campaigning against the gas-led recovery. Alessandro is with us to tell us about how you can get involved. Thanks, Vivian. Yeah, so, you know, as you mentioned, we are we are at a crossroads. We have um, a situation in which the government is trying to funnel billions of dollars uh, into the gas industry, and, like, meanwhile, people are, like, um, in their local communities are like trying to rebuild from these fires, these bushfires, these floods, um, the like devastating impacts of the pandemic. And we need our government to actually support people in their communities. We need them to actually do the right thing and fight climate change and invest in communities and invest in um, improving the lives of the people who, who live here. So um, we've got a plan. The only way we're going to win these changes is by working together, as you said. Um, and uh, at 350, we're connecting people at the local level to work out what you need in your local community and then coordinating um, groups across Australia to, like, work um, in a national campaign to pressure the government to stop um, putting public money into uh, into the gas industry. So right now what we're trying to do is get a whole bunch of people together in um, what we're calling convergences, meetings of activists that are going to be um, taking part in weekend-long uh, training workshops. And we're doing them across Australia, so it doesn't matter which state you live in, you'll, you'll be able to find one. And I'd really encourage anyone who cares about climate change and wants to build your skills and connections with other people to come along. They're going to be, they're going to be fun. We're going to be um, getting into some creativity. We're going to be covering the climate science and concepts like climate justice. And we're going to be figuring out how we can create maximum leverage in our local communities and then coordinate that nationally to stop the flow of public money to gas. What are the main skills? I mean, a lot of people say, oh, they're sick of writing letters to MPs, they're sick of even visiting MPs, they're sick of door knocking, you know, before an election. What um, what new way? What, I, I know 350's got a lot of flair and creativity. They have fantastic posters that have been sent out. I've got quite a lot of posters to put up around here. And um, what, 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 what ingredients do you think are the future ways to go with activism of this sort? Um, I think there's like a bunch of things that we can do. I mean, I know a lot of those tactics like, um, yeah, like having meetings with your MP and stuff can feel like they're, um, they're going nowhere. I think one of the big things that we're trying to do is, is um, link people together and coordinate in campaigns at the same time so that we have maximum impact 
with some of those more traditional types of things. But at the moment, um, what we're really focusing on is getting people to have conversations in their own communities about what they want the government to fund. You know, like you, you all know better than anyone what your local community needs. Do you want more solar panels for your local schools? Do you need, um, like, you know, uh, improvements to your local library? Is there, you know, like all of these things that people need, the government should be putting money into that, creating jobs, um, creating infrastructure that's going to make people's lives better. And I think it's really important that we make it very clear to the government that we know that gas is bad for the environment. It's not going to create jobs like in, you know, anywhere near what the government says it's going to do. And it's, um, it's really in our local communities that we can get the best impact out of that public funding. Fantastic. That's good. And listeners, really, if, you, if you're going down into despair, which a lot of people tend to because of what you hear on the news, just get together with other people because a lot of these are young people. They've got new ideas and no one's going to take this lying down. So get involved with 350.org. Can you tell us the website again? Yeah, absolutely. So all of our activist convergence um, events, you can visit them via the same page and select the one for your state. The URL is a bit of a long one, I'm sorry, but it's um, 350.org.au forward slash join dash a dash 350 dash activist dash convergence. And if you run into any trouble, you can always just go straight to our website, which is 350.org.au. Okay, thank you. I'd like to go out now with a, another song by Kavisha Masela. It's um, an improvisation on the, uh, the words Om Shanti. And the meaning of this is may there be peace. Good night and good luck. My name is Vivian Langford. Oh. Uh-huh.